You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks. Joining me as always, Rob Rang. Hope everyone's having an outstanding Tuesday. Let's talk some Seahawks here. Now for your lead story on Locked On Seahawks. Training camp isn't here yet, but unfortunately for the Seahawks, and we can say this for a number of teams as well, injuries are also a reality of off-season workouts, especially in a weird season like this year. The Seahawks took their first significant injury blow earlier this month. Rookie tight end Colby Parkinson, the fourth-round pick out of Stanford, undergoing surgery for a Jones fracture in his foot. Apparently, Rob, he suffered the injury while running routes. And again, this is something you can expect in the offseason, especially one like this where they haven't had OTAs or mini camps for these guys to truly be able to stay in football shape. Yeah, exactly. And and so the, the injury uh, is obviously a surprise, um, but at the same time, you, you know that, that these types of things are going to happen just because you have athletes who are going to be doing everything they possibly can to, to be able to stay in shape. And with a player like Kobe Parkinson, of course, as a rookie, he certainly is going to want to do that. And so it, so it was huge news. Um, and at the same time, it's, it's something that I think that uh, it, it gives the Seahawks an opportunity to have some other players step up. Obviously with Parkinson being a rookie that you're not losing anything. Um, and unfortunately this is something that, that the Seahawks have seen time and time again with, with pass catchers that they've drafted in the fourth round. We've, we've talked about this before Corbin. It's specifically been at the wide receiver position where it seems like the Seahawks have really struggled, but, but Parkinson is just the, the latest in a, in, in a horrible uh, trend of Seahawks drafted in the fourth round on uh, the, pass rushers that are, excuse me, pass catchers that have struggled to have any type of real impact for the Seahawks. Yeah, you can go all the way back to 2013 with Chris Harper, didn't even make the team coming out of training camp. Then last year, Gary Jennings and really Colby Parkinson, at least at this point in his career, is a very large receiver. That's how Stanford used him, 6'7", 250 pounds. So there does seem to be a little bit of a curse here for fourth round receivers. As far as timetables go here, this is an injury with him having surgery. Everything that I've been told, I actually talked to a recognized foot specialist in the Pacific Northwest about what this might mean for him trying to come back. And 10 weeks is probably the minimum that you're looking at here, which would put him lining up to return in mid-September, which if the season starts as planned, that's going to mean it's well into the regular season. We're already going to be a game or two into the schedule. So I would anticipate Parkinson is going to open the year He's going to open training camp, at least on the pup list. And maybe the most optimistic view would be Seattle keeping him on the roster for the first few couple of weeks with hopes that he would be able to return by week three, week four. But this is also an injury where there is a high risk for re-injury if a player returns too early. It's a difficult bone to heal. A lot of it has to do with the blood flow to your feet. And with a bigger player like Parkinson, that could be an even bigger issue. You see this with NBA players. A lot of NBA players have this particular injury. And it can be really difficult for them to get back in a timely manner because the bone, it can be difficult for that bone to properly heal. 
Yeah, and it can be absolutely debilitating injury. I mean, you're, uh, you know, you just think about it as a tight end or a wide receiver, your ability to be able to change directions quickly with that fifth metatarsal, essentially your your pinky toe, be able to kind of push off. And, and if you cannot do that it, with any kind of force, then you're not going to show any burst. And, you know, that's that's critical when you are a, a, a bigger uh, you know, wide receiver or a tight end as Parkinson is, one who is, uh, you know, kind of not, I wouldn't say reliant on his, on his ability to create create separation but he, he is not a, a straight line speed guy he is a guy that uses his height uses his hops to, to be able to uh, explode off of the ground and, and be able to to high point passes and then, and then use his burst out of his brakes to be able to create some separation in that way so th- this is a significant injury uh, for Parkinson long term and in the short term with next season I- I'm happy that you mentioned the pup list I think that that is a possibility for Parkinson probably the likelihood at this point and to me it, it's it's very similar to, I think, what we saw last year. Obviously, the very different position, defensive end, with, with LJ Collier and how, uh, unfortunately, because of injuries, that, that he was not able to kind of hit the ground running. And we saw that carry out through this entire rookie season. I think that there is a very good chance that we might see that exact same scenario here for Parkinson, especially because Seattle has so many different options at the tight end position. Yeah, I wrote an article about this when the injury first was reported that this could be something that derails Parkinson's season because if you're looking at the most optimistic timetable, 10 weeks, again, that's mid-September when he's returning. Now, if the season doesn't start on time, that would actually help him. But not being able to participate in training camp, however many preseason games that they end up playing, you already missed OTAs and mini camps. So you're going to be even further behind the eight ball than what LJ Collier and even Marquise Blair missed some time in training camp in the preseason, what those two were last year. And so that's the worst case scenario Pete Carroll talked about earlier this month. When young guys miss time, it's debilitating to their growth. And so if he's not able to get back, if he starts the year on the pup list, he won't be eligible till week seven to return for the Seahawks. If that happens, it's going to be really difficult for him to come in and contribute at all as a rookie. Looking at beneficiaries, though, I think when you look at the depth for Seattle, they do have a lot of veterans here. This certainly aids Luke Wilson's chances of being on the roster in 2020. And I think you can make an argument that Stefan Sullivan, even though he's listed as a receiver on their roster, he's played some tight end at LSU. That's going to help his opportunities, at least in training camp in the preseason, to impress the coaching staff and carve out a role on the 53-man roster as a rookie himself. Yeah, I'm happy those are the two players that you mentioned because I think that those are the ones who absolutely benefit the most from this. Uh, you, you know, I mean, obviously, you, you know that the veteran Greg Olson signed in as, you know, as a free agent from Carolina. You, you know he's going to make the roster. You know if Will Disley is able to prove his health, he's making the roster. Jacob Hollister um, is the most productive tight end for the Seahawks a year ago, but he, he plays the, the position so differently than what the Seahawks are likely to ask Parkinson, uh, Sullivan, and, and perhaps uh, – perhaps Luke Wilson as well. And so I think that he really is in kind of a different position all to himself. So, so, you know, mentioning Sullivan, um, you know, I I think is, is, you know, somebody that we have to kind of talk about here because he does have that straight line speed. Uh, he, he does give you a different element. So absolutely. He is a player that I, I think could, uh, you know, really be aided by the extra opportunities that, that, uh, that this injury to Parkinson will provide him. Whenever Parkinson returns, obviously the Seahawks aren't going to force the issue here because of the depth that they have. But I think that the biggest concern here, 
just has to do with the injury history for the other players that the Seahawks have at the tight end position. We know Disley has had two severe injuries in two years. Olsen's missed some time the last few years with foot problems, and he's 35 years old. Hollister's missed time previously with the Patriots. He missed time in the preseason last year. That's part of the reason he didn't make the team out of training camp. And so they do have injury concerns there. With that being said, if they're able to get him back middle of the season, they can at least get him back in the practice field. Maybe by the end of the season, you can get something out of him. This is just the worst news we just talked about. This is the worst news that a rookie can have, especially when you've already missed all the offseason program with what's going on with this pandemic. And so it's just a really difficult situation for Parkinson and the team. When we come back in the second quarter, we're going to start looking back at some classic Seahawk playoff games, some wins, some losses. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. As an avid weightlifter and distance runner, I'm always looking for an edge when it comes to nutrition, seeking quality-tasting protein bars without crazy additives. Since being diagnosed with celiac disease, my options have been pretty limited. Enter in the Built Bar, a low-calorie, low-sugar, high-protein, gluten-free protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. Built Bar comes in 16 amazing flavors. My personal favorite is the peanut butter brownie, which is 20 grams of protein and just 3 grams of sugar and 3 grams of net carbs. Since I had my first one, I won't go without it before hitting my squat rack or going for a jog. All Built Bars are 100% chocolate, nut and gluten free, soft and easy to chew, and don't have the nasty aftertaste associated with most protein bars. Sound too good to be true? Go to BuiltBar.com and check out all their flavor options. You can build your own custom box and new flavors will be coming out May 10th. Try this delicious product for yourself and change your exercise game by using promo code LOCKEDON and get $10 off your first box at BuiltBar.com. Welcome back to the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, joined by Rob Rang. Later in the third quarter, we're going to continue our top 100 Seahawks countdown, numbers 35 through 31, one of my favorite players making this particular cluster of players. Over the next month, Rob, we're going to be revisiting specific playoff games from Seattle's history. Some of them are going to be wins, some losses. We're just going to be breaking down all the classics on Throwback Tuesday and Twitter Thursday. We're actually going to kick off the festivities with a loss. But after rewatching this 2006 divisional round contest between the Seahawks and Bears, it is still one of the best playoff games that Seattle has ever played in. I was still on the edge of my seat watching the replay, even though I knew what was going to happen. <laughs> yeah, it was a very entertaining game. Uh, you know, in Chicago, the, the Seahawks, of course, uh, you know, th- this is 2006. So this is a year removed from uh, their, their run to the Super Bowl. Um, and, and so it, it was a, a game that, I will always remember because, you know, me as a talent evaluator, I just like seeing the, the elite talent on the field. And, you know, you, you went into to Chicago and you saw the, the, the great linebacking core that the Bears had, especially Brian Urlacher, the future Hall of Famer. Lance Briggs as well made some huge plays in that game. Um, and, and then Seattle, on the other hand, had, had you know, a, a trio of linebackers who we've talked about, like Lofitz Tupu and Julian Peterson before, but Leroy Hill as well. And so to me, that was one of the fun things about this game, that it was as competitive as it was. It did go into overtime, and you saw some extraordinary play from some terrific players, and you also saw some some kind of fun plays for some guys that the history has not been quite as kind to, like the Bears' starting quarterback that year, Rex Grossman. Yeah, the good Rex, bad Rex complex. The Bears had to deal with that for a long time. But I, I just, you know, I remember this. Seattle was coming off that Super Bowl 
lost to the Pittsburgh Steelers the year before, and they lost Steve Hutchinson. They had a few other big-name players that left. They did sign Julian Peterson. They brought in Nate Burleson. They disappointed a bit. They were 9-7 and seven in the regular season, but they still won the division. They beat the Cowboys in the wild card round. We'll cover that game at a later time on its own accord. It was a pretty fascinating wild card matchup. But, you know, the Bears were the heavy favorite at 13-3. and three. They had the number two offense in the NFL that year for points scored, which is just shocking to be looking back with having Rex Grossman under center because he threw so many interceptions, but he also had 23 touchdown passes that year. And then, of course, the defense. I could just name name after name after name. One of the best defenses that I've seen in years. Brian Erlacher, Lance Briggs, you mentioned them. Charles Tillman, Mark Anderson, Adewale Gunlier, Nathan Vasher, Ricky Manning. I mean, they were just stacked at all three levels of the defense. I'm sure there's some names I excluded there that were good players for that defense, but I remember early in the game, the Bears marched right down the field on their first drive. 12 plays, 80 yards. It was a methodical beatdown, giving the ball to Thomas Jones and Cedric Benson. Marched right down the field. Jones caps it off with a touchdown. I will admit at that point, Rob, I thought this game had the potential to get ugly because the Bears just manhandled the Seahawks on that opening drive. Yeah, they certainly did. As you said, march right down the field. Uh, Thomas Jones had two rushing touchdowns in, in this game. And, you know, that was one of the things that you know, it had only been a year before. And we mentioned that, that Steve Hutchinson obviously had, uh, you know, been lost in free agency to the Minnesota Vikings. And, uh, you know, and so we were used to in Seattle being able to kind of push people around at the point of attack and be able to run the football um, wherever they wanted. You know, you had Sean Alexander coming off of his MVP season uh, the year before, of course, and and, and yet it was uh, the Chicago Bears who were, who were basically giving Seattle a dose of their own medicine. Uh, and that Seattle was effective. Alexander had a couple touchdowns of his own as well. Um, but it was interesting. We'll be talking about some of these offensive linemen a little bit later in the third quarter, but it, Seattle kind of transitioned from having the most dominant left side in all of football to a pretty damn good right side and that's that's where they try to run the ball a lot in this particular game but you also saw some terrific passes some of the resiliency that, that made Matt Hasselbeck uh you know such a beloved player in Seahawks history as well I'm glad you mentioned Alexander here because he had a really rough season in 2006 he's coming off his MVP year with over 1800 rushing yards had some injuries didn't get to that thousand yard mark for the first time in six years And I think a lot of people at that point thought, well, the wheels are falling off. He's done. And ultimately, that ended up being the case. He had a really rough next season as well. Then he was out of Seattle. But this was that – there's that saying that every great fighter has one last great fight in them. This was that last great fight for Sean Alexander. He had 108 rushing yards and two touchdowns against that vaunted Bears defense, especially the second half. They just struggled tackling him. He wore them down in the first half. Second half, they ended up having all kinds of trouble. And Sean Alexander had one of the best playoff games of his career. If you look at his playoff stats, he was not a great player in the postseason a lot of the time. This was one of his best performances, and Seattle needed it to hang in this game. But let's go back to that opening drive because, like I said, it looked like the Bears were going to win this one easily the way that opening drive went. And then Seattle ends up punting on their next drive. So you're just thinking, oh, boy, here we go. But they get a stop on the Bears, their second offensive drive. And then Seattle goes in their own 71-yard drive 
on nine plays. Matt Hasselbeck hits Nate Burleson from 16 yards out, and then you're realizing we got ourselves a game early in the second quarter. Then the next play, right after the kickoff, Grossman hits Bernard Berrien for a 68-yard touchdown, burning Kelly Jennings. So, again, it felt like you know, the, the Bears just have everything going for them. It's going to be a long game. But this really was a back-and-forth affair the entire way. A couple drives later, Seattle's able to tie the game because Julian Peterson strips sacks Grossman deep in Bears territory. Chartrick Darby recovers it. So there's one of your unsung heroes that had a big fumble recovery in that game. And it's suddenly 14-14. The Bears scored again with Jones at the end of the first half. But, I mean, considering how it started, you're down seven points, and the Seahawks get the ball after halftime. Pretty good positioning considering the circumstances. Yeah, they, they really were. And that, to me, was one of the things, again, that made this game such an entertaining one, is, is that it's uh, – and I, I liked the, what you said with Sean Alexander about the, you know, how the great fighters, how, how they have one more, uh, you know, one more great fight in them kind of a thing. That, to me, was what this game was like because it was almost like a boxing match and that there was a lot of body blows uh, going back and forth. And then, you know, the, the big uppercut that was that long touchdown to Bernard Bear. And, um, and as you mentioned, over Kelly Jennings. And, you know, Kelly Jennings, of course, was Seattle's first-round selection that year. Uh, and, and he played a lot of football for Seattle and, for the most part, played reasonably well, given that he was a rookie. But at the same time, just a couple of weeks before, at the tail end of the, of the regular season, Seattle's best cornerback, Marcus Trufant, went down with an ankle injury. And so suddenly Kelly Jennings uh, was basically being asked to try and cover uh, you know, the Chicago Bears speediest wide receiver and burying a legitimate 4-3 guy from Fresno State and you know unfortunately that matchup uh, proved pretty uh, problematic for the Seahawks throughout that game it was it's not the burying went off but that Seattle kind of had to shift their defense a little bit to try and protect the rookie a little bit and that opened up some other things for for some of Chicago's other good receivers including Muhammad um, who had a, a big game himself. Yeah, the Bears had plenty of weapons on the outside. They had a couple good tight ends as well. Like I said, they finished second in the NFL that year in points scored. I think that's kind of a trivia question for a lot of people because everyone just thought the Bears were great because their defense, obviously they had a fantastic defense, but that year the offense was outstanding. They produced a lot of points to go with that vaunted defense that was on the other side of the football. Second half gets here, Seahawks down seven. They cut the lead to four on a Josh Brown field goal at the beginning of the quarter. And then the next drive, they force a punt, two sacks, Grant Wistrom and Rocky Bernard. So they were able to start getting pressure on Rex Grossman. And then they marched right downfield the next drive. And who was the centerpiece of that drive? Sean Alexander just running through and around the Bears defense. Scores from 13 yards out. It's 24-21. The Bears drive down. And then I'm going to throw out a name that our listeners probably have never heard of before. Pete Hunter, who was signed right after Marcus Trufant's injury. He wasn't even in the NFL before that point. He, I, I forget what job he was working. I think he was like officer or something. But he was not on an NFL roster. They signed him off the street. And he gets a huge interception on Rex Grossman deep in Seahawks territory. At this point, the, the tide has turned. It's looking really good for the Seahawks to win this game. Unfortunately, the fourth quarter and overtime were all about missed opportunities on offense. And that ultimately prevented them from getting the job done. 
Yeah, I did. You know, and, and as you mentioned, with, with good Rex and, and bad Rex. I mean, Rex Grossman. You know, the interception that the Pete Hunter give give Hunter uh, some credit for for his play, but the, like the fumble lost, uh, as you talked about before. I mean, that was classic Rex Grossman, just not taking care of the football, and you know, some of the things that, that ultimately led to him being washing out in the NFL earlier than he should have, because he also made some terrific throws for the Bears in this game. You mentioned that the big deep throw to Barry. I mean, that was a picture perfect throw hall of famers don't make that throw any better than he did on that particular pass and he had another couple of of just really pretty passes in which he saw the rush and adjusted and and, and was able to kind of zip the ball through defenders to make some big plays for the bears um you know but matt Hasselbeck on the same time was able to make some big plays in, himself and then as you mentioned with that 13 yard run to me that was one of the iconic runs of sean alexander's career in my opinion because i was among those people who thought alexander looks washed up he is not the same guy and at times he still ran with that kind of slow staggering way but it, it was so deceptive it was so powerful um, and, and then on that particular 13 yard run it just kind of opened up and one of the things that anybody who watched the Seahawks during the Sean Alexander era knows is that he was a different back when he smelled the end zone um, and, and so he showed that burst that we didn't see a lot of so it, it did you're, you're right Corbin it did look like the Seahawks might be able to make that fourth quarter comeback they actually were ahead in the fourth quarter Quarter, but those unfortunate uh, missed opportunities, as you mentioned, in Chicago was able to carve their way back into the field. Yeah, they actually had five possessions in the fourth quarter in overtime. After that touchdown by Sean Alexander and then the interception by Pete Hunter, they had five possessions. One of them was a one-play drive that Matt Hasselbeck got intercepted. The other four drives, they weren't able to get any points on the board. The closest they got was late in the fourth quarter. They were in Bears territory and had fourth and two. And they handed off to Sean Alexander, who throughout the second half had had pretty much could do whatever he wanted behind that Seahawks offensive line. But the Bears defense stepped up when they had to, and they stuffed Alexander at the line of scrimmage, turned the ball over on downs. And then overtime, they get the ball. Seattle is able to get a little bit of a drive going, but they can't finish it off. They punt it away. Bears march down. Robbie Gold kicks a field goal, splits the upright, and Chicago advances eventually to the Super Bowl where they lose to the Indianapolis Colts. The Locked On Podcast Network stands against racism and social injustice. That's why we, the hosts, are making personal donations to local and national organizations that are fighting for change. And in the month of June, Locked On is matching the total of all host donations up to an additional $10,000. To make your own donation along with us, please visit LockedOnPodcast.com slash Black Lives Matter. When we come back from a quick break, we're going to continue our Top 100 Seahawks countdown, numbers 35 through 31. Don't go away. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back. Glad to have you joining us here on the Locked On Seahawks podcast. This is your host, Corbin Smith, joined by Rob Rang. We're nearing the conclusion of our Top 100 Seahawks countdown, now to numbers 35 through 31. We're going to kick things off with one of the more decorated cornerbacks ever to come out of the college ranks, a former Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year from Ohio State that was actually drafted ahead of Walter Jones in the 1997 NFL Draft. Seattle had two first-rounders. They eventually picked Jones, but with the number three overall pick, they went to the secondary and snagged Sean Springs. 
Yeah, uh, just an absolutely dominant player. Uh, you know, I, I remember evaluating Sean Springs out of Ohio State. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, number three overall selection that year. That's the highest a cornerback has ever gone. It was matched again this year. Jeff Akuda for the Detroit Lions made, made another Ohio State Buckeye the first corner selected this year as well. And for, for people who maybe are more familiar with, with Akuda, uh, you know, or, or some of the, the corners that are playing now and don't remember you know the young Sean Springs in 1997 uh, just walking in and, and, and becoming a, a longtime starter for the Seahawks and then he had five years in, in Washington another year in, in New England at the end as well um, but a 13-year career that Sean Springs Corbin as you probably remember was just a just a different level of an athlete I mean when you look at the the great corners in Seahawks history the guys like Dave Brown and and we mentioned Marcus Trufant before he had that type of cover skills as well not as long not as physical as the Richard Sherman's and what the Seahawks look for now just a different level of uh, of electric athlete 4-3 speed could could turn on a dime had ball skills as well really could have been in my opinion at least a hall of fame caliber player and if he had had a little bit more of those interceptions wound up with 33 but 33 over a 13 year career is not the type of production that you usually want for a hall of fame player but my goodness a terrific player for a long long time He had kind of a weird career arc, if you look back at it, because his first season in Seattle, he started 10 games, had an interception. You know, he had a decent rookie season, nothing spectacular for a top five pick. Walter Jones stepped in and had a better rookie season than what he did. But 1998, the only year Sean Springs made the Pro Bowl, he goes out and intercepts seven passes. He takes two of them back for touchdowns. So he had a fantastic season, and it looked like, oh, boy, this guy is going to be a Hall of Fame caliber player for the Seahawks. That's the kind of production you got from him. You get five interceptions in 1999, 14 passes defensed. Those were his two best seasons in the NFL. He had one year with Washington, his first year with the Redskins, that he made their investment look pretty good by getting five interceptions in 2004. But as far as his Seahawks career goes, I'm not sure what happened after 1999. He had a couple years where he got some injuries that caused him to miss some games, but his interception production went down substantially. He was still getting past his defense, still had 14 of them in 2000, but just two picks, had one interception the next year in eight games, had another year in 2003 right before free agency, one interception. It just seemed like I remember Mike Holmgren talking about this at one point. It just felt like something changed after the 1999 season, whether he just had a few bad plays go his way, and then suddenly he just didn't have the same swag that you were, you were used to seeing from him. And that certainly impacted his play, but still – 20 interceptions in seven seasons with the Seahawks, 55 passes defense. They didn't even count those in 97 and 98. So that number would have been higher unofficially. He forced some fumbles, had five fumble recoveries. He was a good tackler, 434 tackles in that span. And so he's not in the Richard Sherman category, but he's in that next tier of corner right behind Sherman and Dave Brown, where he deserves to be in the mid-30s as far as top 100 Seahawks all time. Number 34, we're going to the linebacker position. We've talked so much about that 1990 NFL draft. It was the best draft the Seahawks had with Ken Baring as the owner. You get Cortez Kennedy in the first round. You also drafted Chris Warren in the middle rounds. But another really good player they drafted that year 
was linebacker Terry Wooden, who stepped right in. He started eight games in 1990. He did have some injuries in the 90 season, but started eight games that year. By 1991, full-time starter, 105 tackles that year. And then he had a couple other monster seasons for Seattle, three other years with over 100 tackles. He led the league in solo tackles in 1995 with 114 of them. And so this is another player that I think unfortunately gets lost in Seahawks history because he played on some really bad football teams in the early to mid-90s. Oh, some horrific football teams. <laughs> you know, I mean, but, but, but Terry Wooden, uh, Cortez Kennedy, Robert Blackman, I mean, the, those are three of the, the defenders that the Seattle drafted that year that, that wound up all making, of course, our, our list of the top 100 Seahawks of all time, despite the fact that, as you mentioned, that it was such an such a ugly time um, in Seahawks history in terms of wins and losses. But, uh, you know, you know with, with Terry Wooden, you're talking about a player who, unfortunately, had some injury issues. Uh, in 1990 season, he only played eight games. Same thing in 1992, eight games. Uh, 96, his last season in Seattle, nine games. Then went on for a year in Kansas City, a, a year in Oakland. Wound up having a, a nine-year career in the NFL, which, of course, is, is a lot longer than a lot of guys, especially at the linebacker position. But to me, he was one of those guys that – that even though he did have durability issues when he was on the field, he, he was one of your best players. I mean, he just, he did everything well. He, he was not an elite pass rusher, but he was good enough that if you asked him to, to play that role, he could do it. He was physical at the point of attack. He was, he was instinctive in coverage, able to make some plays. And, uh, you know, and, and so I, he was a guy that I think, again, as we talked about, probably is a little bit underrated from the, 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 the general Seahawk perspective. He had 625 tackles in just 87 starts. That's the, that's the kind of player we're talking about. He might have missed some time because of injuries, but when he was out there, he was extremely productive. He also had six interceptions, his career high of three coming in that 1994 season. He had 127 tackles, one and a half sacks, a couple fumble recoveries. He took one of those interceptions back for a touchdown. I just think this is one of those players that – when you consider the team he played on, again, that you know, the 90s in general, the Seahawks had some really good defensive players, but the offensive issues ended up preventing them from winning enough games to get to the playoffs all the way till 1999. So Wooden never got to play in a playoff game for the Seahawks. He played in one playoff game later in his career, had a really productive career when he was healthy. That was the big thing that held him back. But when you still have 625 tackles and six interceptions in just 89 games of the team – this guy really was a tackling machine, and in my estimation, he is the most underrated linebacker in Seahawks history, which is why I am thrilled he comes in at number 34 on this list. Now at number 33, we're going to go much more recently here. You and I can debate this here for a moment, but I think Max Unger is the best center in Seahawks history. He's the only center that they've ever had that was a first-team All-Pro selection, did that in 2012 for the team that got to the playoffs, and then the next year they won a Super Bowl. He started both Super Bowls for the Seattle Seahawks, was a pro bowler twice, had some injury concerns himself, but he was one of the few guys that was a holdover from the previous regime. He was drafted by Jim Mora. Pete Carroll kept him around as the starting center, and he really brought stability to an offensive line that was a strength in 2012 and 2013. They lost a lot of those guys in free agency. We know what happened in years after that. They had a tough time replacing Unger as well, but this guy was just a gamer. He went out and did his job, a very savvy center that 
the entire rest of the offensive line. They followed his lead and really was, in my estimation, the best center they ever had. Yeah, I, I, for me, it's, it's still Kevin Mawai. But I, I understand what you're I, – I would say that I think that Max Unger is probably the best pass-blocking center that I've ever seen in the Seahawks uniform. Uh, 6'5", 305 pounds, and was really light on his feet. Could have played the guard or, I believe, even the tackle position because he was as agile as he was. He wasn't the, 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 the guy that could drive people off the line of scrimmage, um, you know, at least in, in my opinion. And, and so I, I really believe that, that he – was a really nice fit for Seattle's scheme under Mike Holmgren. Um, and that, and certainly it was a terrific fit in, in New Orleans, where, of course, he had a great deal of success with the Saints as well in, in their offense. And so uh, a, a terrific player. Um, you know, very much worthy uh, of the, the early, the second round selection in which he, which the, the Seahawks drafted him out of Oregon, walked in and, and started immediately for the Seahawks, was, was the leader, was the, uh, you know, as I mentioned, was as athletic as he is. I think that that, that definitely was a, it was a big part of Seattle's offense having the success that he had. But at the same time, as we kind of talked about a little bit with, with Terry Wooden, unfortunately, durability issues were, were one of the, the real uh, catch 22 with Unger uh, when he was on the field, he was absolutely a difference maker. Unfortunately he had a couple of years where, where he had significant injuries, including that 2010 season, his second with the club where he only was able to play one game before injury and knocked him down. And then same thing with 2014 where he only was able to play six games, but he started every single other game of his entire NFL career. In fact, 130 uh, game appearances, 130 starts. I don't know that you can give a better uh you know endorsement than if you're healthy you play that's exactly what max Unger did he was a perfect fit for tom cable's zone blocking scheme the zone heavy scheme that they ran with the movement skills the agility that he possessed at the center position in their current scheme he might not be quite as good of a fit because he wasn't that bruising mauler up front but at the same time uh, Seattle still runs mostly zone anyway. So this is a guy that, as I said, you know, Kevin Wye, you're looking at an entire career, would certainly be the better center. He's a Hall of Famer. Max Unger isn't going to be. But in terms of playing in Seattle, again, the only center they've ever had that was a first-team All-Pro. And I think that's very significant when you're comparing him to the other players they've had at the position. At number 32, we talked that 2006 playoff game. A uh, player that played in that game, right guard Chris Gray, Talk about Robbie Tobeck on yesterday's show being a center that was kind of under the radar on that offensive line. And without having Steve Hutchinson in 2006, they really did start to become an offensive line that started to run more behind the right side. And Chris Gray, at the end of his career, was a big part of that. He was, uh, as we mentioned before, with that that Chicago Bears game uh, in Seattle, it was the it was the right side uh, between Chris Gray and uh, and Sean Locklear that that Seattle that 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 became kind of Seattle's bread and bre- bread and butter. Excuse me. Now, now, obviously, not nearly as dominant as the left side between Hutchinson and, and Walter Jones, but still very effective. And and we were just kind of debating a little bit about the the virtues of Max Unger compared to say Kevin Mawai or or whoever the case might be. Chris Gray was a brawler I mean this is not a guy who was at that that dancing bear of an athlete at least not during the 10 years that he played for the Seahawks which is of course after four years in in Miami and another year with the Chicago Bears before Seattle draft him and I'm happy that Chris Gray is is being listed up here as prominently as he is because I would agree I think that he is very underrated in in Seattle's uh, you know the list of uh, of players in Seahawks history that have had significant impacts but 
But to me, one of the fascinating things about him, Corbin, is that unlike some of the other players that we've talked about here recently that, that struggle with injuries, Chris Gray, it was it was injuries. It was it was just struggling on the field initially um, in Miami. But once he got to Seattle, he was about as reliable as rain in Seattle. I mean, it was just you know every single game. It feel it felt like that he was going to be starring at the right guard position unless there was an injury at center or injury at left guard. And then Chris Gray was able to just pick up and, and move over there. And it's that type of positional versatility. Uh, and, and durability, uh, reliability, that I think is one of the reasons why he does deserve to be listed as high as he is on our list. You talk about durability. Out of 160 possible regular season games from 1998 to 2007, he played in 158 of them. He started 145 games during that span. Starting in 2000 to 2007, his last eight years in Seattle, he started and played in all but one game. So he was Mr. Reliable. And Sean Alexander would tell you that. Sean Alexander, five straight years with over a 1,000 rushing yards. Chris Gray was a constant on that offensive line. All five of those seasons played in every single game from 2001 to 2005, including Alexander, obviously his MVP season in 2005. And I think the thing that really jumps out to me, never made a Pro Bowl, and so that was one reason he was lower on some people's list. But I looked at the durability, I looked at the reliability, and the fact that he was such a great run blocker at the point of attack, which was so big for those teams in the early to mid-2000s in Seattle, as it's been for most of Seattle's history. The run game is important. Chris Gray played a huge role in the success they had running the football down people's throats. Now wrapping up this cluster here at number 31, one of my all-time favorite Seahawks. I played fullback when I was a football player, and so I have a love for that position. And John L. Williams was the type of fullback that even in today's game, we've seen what Kyle Juszczyk does for the San Francisco 49ers. I think John L. Williams actually might have had a better NFL career if he was drafted today. Just a different type of fullback than we had typically seen in the 1980s. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy that you mentioned Kyle Juszczyk. I mean, it's just it's it, it's sad to me the, the way the game has changed because I I love the the fullback position and running the, the ball down people's throats and all that kind of stuff. And and John L. Williams could do that. He I think that he does not get enough credit for um, being a, a very effective lead blocker when asked to asked to do that, uh, as well as being a very good runner. But I think anybody who watched John L. Williams uh, throughout his time in Seattle, eight years in Seattle, is going to remember uh, just how often that he would catch those little passes out of the backfield, those little slip screens, those little throws out to the, uh, you know, out, out to the flats, and and big number thirty-two would be out there rolling. And, and you know, five hundred and forty-six career receptions, um, and four hundred and seventy-one of them coming with the Seahawks. He, he finished his last couple of years with the Pittsburgh Steelers where he was still a really, really good football player for a, for a team that knows how to use his fullbacks. And so that, that's the thing is that I agree with you. I think that as good as John L. Williams was then, if he could find a team in today's era that actually used the fullback the way the 49ers do, the way the Seattle has occasionally, uh, then I think that, that certainly his skill set uh, would have set him up to have a great deal of success even in today's era. You'd look back and realize that he was a fullback drafted 15th overall. Man, have the times really changed. You know, you just don't see fullbacks get drafted. I mean, a lot of times fullbacks don't get drafted in general, but 
1986, the Seahawks drafted him out of Florida with the 15th overall selection. He comes in, has 538 rushing yards, catches 33 passes as a rookie. A couple years later, 877 rushing yards and also produced 651 yards as a receiver on 58 receptions, seven combined touchdowns, had six receiving touchdowns in 1989. He was a pro bowler in 1990 and 1991 with over 700 rushing yards each of those two seasons, over 60 receptions each of those two seasons. He is the only player in Seahawks history that is in the top 10 for rushing yardage as well as receiving yardage. And that by itself tells me he is one of the best players the Seahawks have ever had. I had him in the 20s for that reason, just because of how incredibly productive that he was both as a runner and a receiver. And you know he could block too. He was a complete package. And he showed that during his time in Seattle. He showed it in his two years in Pittsburgh to close out his career. A fantastic career with 5,000 rushing yards, 18 rushing touchdowns, 546 receptions, 19 receiving touchdowns. Those are phenomenal numbers for a fullback with his athleticism and his versatile skill set. No question in my mind that John L. Williams, if he played today, would still be a monster in the modern NFL. In fact, as I said, I think he might be an even better player with the way the game has changed today. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever your preferred podcast platform is by visiting us at LockedOnSeahawks.com. When we come back for our Wednesday show, we're going to continue our Top 100 Countdown looking at numbers 30 through 26. We're also going to be discussing a certain receiver that has once again been linked to the Seahawks. You won't want to miss that discussion. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. Go Hawks.